Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. We had a brief interval last Sunday when we studied Psalm 8, but today we are back on track, picking up our study in the book of James, chapter 3. And you can hold your Bibles open there. I want to begin by drawing your attention to a song, a hymn. On the screen behind me, we sang some beautiful hymns, songs this morning, and I number this one uh, among my favorites, but my list of favorites is about 100 long, so it doesn't really mean much when I say favorites, but uh, I just want you to consider these words. Uh, I'll explain why in a moment. It it may be new to some of you. For some, this might be an an oldie, but I I trust, I pray for all, uh, it will be edifying. Uh, Give me a sight, O Savior, of thy wondrous love to me, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die on Calvary. So it's a prayer, right? The hymn writer is setting pen to paper, and he is expressing his desire for a sight of the Savior's love. Uh... That love that led to the incarnation brought thee down to earth. That love that culminated in the crucifixion to die on Calvary. That's his prayer. Next slide, Ricky, please. He builds on it. Oh, make me understand it. So not merely see it, but to grasp it, understand it. Help me to take it in. Embrace it. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. And so the prayer is building. You've got sight, you have understanding, you have appropriation, and now the next stanza, Ricky, you have celebration. Oh, wonder of all wonders, that through thy death for me, my open sins, I love this next phrase, my secret sins may all forgiven be. And so he has the sight of the Savior's love, incarnation, crucifixion, the understanding, the grasping of the significance, the weight of that historical event, his appropriation, embracing it, internalizing it, and now this great application whereby he celebrates, a wonder of all wonders, this is it, that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. Are you following them? One more stanza, Ricky. Back to prayer. Here's the net result. This is where this prayer is leading, this appropriation of truth, this celebration of the forgiveness of sins, culminating in this last stanza. Then melt my heart, O Savior. Melt my heart. Bend me. Yea, break me down until I own the conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. Now, I wish I could write like that. I cannot write like that, but that is a tremendous hymn, and it is a tremendous prayer. It's this phrase that he uses here that caught my interest this past week, melt my heart, O Savior. So what I've caught a sight of, 
what I understand, what I have internalized, what I have applied and understood, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. And now the net result, a melted heart. What is a melted heart? I jotted down a sentence. Here it is. A melted heart is gripped, enthralled, overwhelmed, and captivated by the realization that in Christ Jesus, God forgives us our sins. That is a melted heart. It is gripped, enthralled, overwhelmed, and captivated by this realization that in Christ Jesus, my open sins and my secret sins can all forgiven be. A heart that really, really gets it. We have numerous examples of such a heart throughout Scripture. I'm thinking of one woman. The story is, Luke records the story for us. It is of a woman who remains nameless. She is simply identified as a sinner. That's all you need to know. A woman, a sinner, stumbles into a room in which the Lord Jesus is dining with a host, and there are other people in the room, and she is there to see the Lord Jesus. She approaches, she prostrates herself on the ground before him, She wets his feet with her tears. She anoints his feet with oil. She washes and cleanses and dries his feet with her hair. She isn't named. She is simply identified as a sinner. The host of the banquet is named. That's interesting. We don't have time to go into it. Simon. When Simon sees the woman... He is scandalized. When he sees what the woman is doing, uh, he is bewildered. When he sees Christ's response, he is speechless. Does he not know that this woman is a sinner? And the Lord Jesus gives a bit of a response to Simon. It culminates in this expression, O Simon, he who is forgiven little. Loves little. That's great. He who is forgiven little loves little. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Here's what he does not mean. He is not saying that there is a scale, a sin scale. And at this end of the scale, you have the deplorable. Those who are really bad, committed a lot of sins. There they are at this scale, end of the scale. And then way over at this opposite end, you have those who aren't nearly as bad. They may have done one or two bad things, but they're pretty good overall. And in between, you have the spectrum of people between these two extremes. And you see that individual who's way over here and has committed lots of sins. Well, he's been forgiven much. Therefore, obviously, he's going to love much. But this individual up here has actually lived a pretty good life. The glass is 90% full, hasn't really committed that many sins. Well, if he's forgiven, well, then he's only going to love little because he doesn't really have that great sense 
of what it means to be forgiven. That is not what the Lord Jesus is saying. What the Lord Jesus is saying is simply this. Look, there is no scale. All are under sin. Everyone is in the same predicament. All are children of wrath by nature. All have open sins, and even more significantly, secret sins. Here's the issue. The individual who recognizes his, her sin, as opposed to the individual who does not recognize the extent of their sin and the depth of their depravity, well, this individual's love will be far greater because they understand the magnitude of their sin and conversely appreciate the magnitude of God's forgiveness. But you see, this individual who is in actual fact self-righteous and doesn't really get it, and yes, acknowledge that we, bit of, we sin here and there and done some things bad and some things I wish I could change. Sure, 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 sure. But a person who really does not understand who they are in the sight of God, well, they've been forgiven little, meaning their appreciation of what it means to be forgiven is only little because they have no sight, no sense of the magnitude of their sin and therefore have no sense of the magnitude of God's forgiveness. Simon, guess who you are? That's what the Lord Jesus was saying to him. Guess which category you fit into, my friend? This woman? Guess what category she fits in? Simon, you are no better than her. But she loves much because she's been forgiven much because she understands the magnitude of her sin before a holy God. Simon, you love little. You love little because you've been forgiven little, meaning you think there is little to be forgiven. You do not really understand the depth of your sin. Simon, if you did, you'd be on the ground beside this woman wiping my feet with your hair. Your love would superabound and flow for the one who is able to forgive you your sins. Oh, a melted heart, gripped, enthralled, overwhelmed, and captivated by the realization that in Christ Jesus, God forgives us our sins. It is a heart overwhelmed by God's forgiveness. This makes a melted heart, and it's Christ's point in that story. This makes a melted heart a loving heart. You know you've got a melted heart when you've got a loving heart. A melted heart is a loving heart. A melted heart is a kind heart. A melted heart is a thoughtful heart. It is a gentle heart. It is a humble heart. It is a forgiving heart. Where those things, kindness, thoughtfulness, gentleness, humility, and forgiveness are absent, you do not have a loving heart. And you do not have a loving heart because you do not have a melted heart. And you do not have a melted heart because you still have an individual who really doesn't get it. Doesn't get it. The magnitude of their sin and the sheer magnitude of what it means to be forgiven 
in Christ Jesus. Now, you're asking, what has this got to do with James 3? That's a great question. I'm glad to hear you're asking it. What has this got to do with James 3? It has everything to do with James 3. Because beginning in verse 13, okay, through into the fourth chapter, right up to verse 12, James is going to take us to some places we would rather not go. All right? He's going to bring us face to face with some things we would rather not see. He is going to force us gently and at times not so gently to face facts and to see ourselves perhaps as we really are and to wrestle with things that in actual fact, if we were left with the choice, we would rather slip by. So we're in for some dark times in terms of what is coming, in terms of the problems he is going to address from James 3.13 through to James 4, verse 12. He is going to describe an ailment, or rather a series of ailments, although there's great interconnectedness. And so I want to make sure going in, we've already got the remedy. All right? So you understand why I've done what I've done. I want to make sure... We already have the remedy in hand for what is coming. And I want us to be clear that the only remedy is a melted heart. For the problem, for the ailment, for the condition, for the circumstance, and some of them very deplorable, for the things he's about to say and for the sins he is about to unmask, I want to make sure this prayer is, is on our lips, right? I want to make sure we're very clear. Oh, melt my heart, oh, Savior. Bend me, yea, break me down until I own thee conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. Because until we have a melted heart and we really pray that, there is no getting out of the verses we're about to read and there is no remedy for the ailment he is about to identify. You're clear on that. So pick it up in verse 13. It's a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He introduces this great motif, great motif of Scripture, wisdom. Fascinating that he does not mention any of the things we usually identify with wisdom. No mention of test scores, no mention of academic degrees. Why? Because in Scripture, wisdom is not intellectual, strictly speaking. Wisdom is not theoretical. Wisdom is practical, firstly, meaning it is manifested in conduct. And so who is wise and understanding among you? 
Don't bother pulling out your academic degrees. Don't tell me how smart you are. Don't just share all this cognitive information. No, the wisdom I'm speaking of is practical. Here's how you'll show it. You'll show it by your conduct, by his good conduct. Let him show his works. We already know what works he has in view. In case you've missed it, the first dozen times I've identified them, it's way back in chapter one. And there you have it in verses 26 and 27. Fruit number one, a bridled tongue. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Fruit number two, a compassionate heart. The religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Piece of fruit number three, an unstained life, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There is the conduct, the works that he has in view that mark wisdom. And so wisdom is practical. It is manifested in conduct. And secondly, wisdom is moral, meaning it is marked by meekness. And so by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Go back to chapter 1. He's already mentioned this. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 21, what does he say? Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's the wisdom he has in view. Who has that kind of wisdom? Who is wise and understanding among you? Well, it will be practical, manifested in conduct, and it will be moral, marked by meekness. And then what he proceeds to do from verse 14 to verse 18 is drive home his point. He, he wants to make it very clear, and he wants to leave his readers in no doubt as to this fact that wisdom is marked by meekness. And so in verses 14 through 18, he compares and contrasts two kinds of wisdom. He describes firstly wisdom from below, or we could say wisdom that is hellish, hellish. And then in verses 17 and 18, he describes wisdom from above, wisdom that is heavenly. And so we're tackling the first kind of wisdom today, wisdom from below, wisdom that is hellish. There it is, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I want you to notice three things. The three things correspond to the three verses. Firstly, I want you to understand the origin of this kind of wisdom, this hellish wisdom, its origin, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, there's the origin, the root, if you like, 
Here's where it flows from, the heart, this hellish wisdom. And it is rooted in selfish ambition. In other words, it is rooted in ego. E-G-O, right? It's the Greek, first person pronoun, ego, ego in the Greek. Uh, Self-preoccupation, self-admiration. Uh, self-attention, self-preoccupation, selfishness. Here's the root, selfish ambition. And you see, the problem is when selfish ambition, my love of myself, my ego is crossed by someone else, it shows itself in bitter jealousy. And so the story goes. Two shopkeepers were bitter rivals. Two shopkeepers were bitter rivals. Their stores were directly across the street from each other, and they would spend each day keeping track of each other's business. If one got a customer, he would smile in triumph at his rival. One night, an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers in a dream and said, I will give you anything you ask, but whatever you receive, your competitor will receive twice as much. Would you be rich? You can be very rich, but he will be twice as wealthy. Do you wish to live a long and healthy life? You can, but his life will be longer and healthier. What is your desire? The man frowned, thought for a moment, and then said, here is my request. Strike me blind in one eye. A humorous example of a horrendous problem. Horrendous problem. Selfish ambition leading to what? Bitter jealousy. Jonathan Edwards defines the problem as follows. These two expressions. We love, we love to be uppermost. That selfish ambition. We love to be uppermost. We love to be noticed. We love to be esteemed. We love to be applauded. And this disposition, says Edwards, is crossed when we see others above us. And the result is bitter jealousy. You see, bitter jealousy is merely frustrated selfish ambition. That's all it is. That's the connection between the two, right? Bitter jealousy is merely frustrated, selfish ambition. We love to be uppermost. And we will use anything and everything to feed our ego. And in a vain, really a vain, pointless quest, of satisfying our desire for exaltation to be uppermost. We will use our wealth. We will use our beauty. We will use our success. We will use our achievements. We will use our family. We will use our spiritual gifts. We will use our spiritual causes. We will use our spiritual ministries. 
We will use absolutely anything that in any way differentiates us from our brothers and sisters in order to feed, to feed selfish ambition, to set myself apart, to assure myself before God, although I would never say that, that in some way, somehow, I am better than, I am uppermost. And when those things are crossed, Someone doesn't acknowledge what I have put out there as differentiating me and distinguishing me and giving me self-worth. When someone doesn't recognize my wealth or my position, when someone doesn't recognize my achievements or my successes, when someone doesn't recognize my spiritual gifts and my service and my causes and my ministries and everything else I'm involved in, when someone doesn't recognize my position on this or my feeling about that, when someone actually dares to disagree with me, What is crossed? Selfish ambition. And what is the result? It is bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy is a no-brainer. It is easy to identify. Those who struggle from it are blinded to it. In that respect, we are all blinded to it in ourselves. But it is rather easy to identify in others. Three marks. Number one, it is angry. It's angry. It's just angry. And it's easily agitated and provoked. It's always finding fault with others. It's always venting. And it's always criticizing. That is a mark of bitter jealousy arising from a crossed or frustrated selfish ambition. Secondly, it's moody. It's irritable and resentful. It's easily wronged and easily offended. It bears grudges against those who have what it doesn't, and it bears grudges against those who don't think like it, feel like it, act like it, or talk like it. And thirdly, it's touchy, too touchy. It's like a bone out of joint. When confronted, it will deflect attention. It will always play the victim, always wronged, always misunderstood, always offended. Three telltale marks of bitter jealousy. What's James thought on the subject? Right there at the end of verse 14, he's writing, my friends, if that's you, do not boast. Do not claim to be wise. That's not wisdom. Do not boast and be false to the truth. Essentially what he's saying is this, recognize your hypocrisy. And as he's going to get to at the end of this section in chapter four, he's going to call on them to humble themselves before God. Seek after a melted heart because a melted heart in light of the forgiveness of God is the only thing that is going to stop you from judging your brothers and sisters and putting up all of these things that differentiate and distinguish whereby you make yourself feel good in the sight of God because you've contached ultimate worth to these things. If you want to get over it, you must have a melted heart. You must resist the devil. You must humble yourself before God and God will draw near to you. He who is angry, moody, and touchy, oh, it will dissipate like a mist, a morning mist, before Calvary's cross and the love of God as poured out in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. There's the origin. I want you to notice, secondly, it's nature. If that weren't tough enough to swallow, steady yourself. Here we go, verse 15, it's nature. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is not the wisdom that comes down from above. 
Now notice this threefold description. It is earthly, focused on the temporal and material. It is unspiritual, focused on the carnal and sensual. And worst of all, it's demonic. It's it's rooted in the spiritual forces of evil. Uh, Someone recently asked me, you know, do I, you know, when it gets to demonology, you know, do you believe people are possessed today? You know, haunted houses and all these, you know, on and on and on. The person had been watching too much TV. But anyway, we'll go there. Uh, on and on and on it went. And uh, I, I, I simply respond, you know, I probably recognize the devil and his hosts as far more active than you do. But I'm not looking for weird sights and sounds. I'm simply looking for disorder. That's all I'm looking for. I'm simply looking for disorder. Because as James is going to get to in the next verse, disorder is the result of this kind of wisdom, this hellish wisdom. And obviously he is saying that demons make it their goal to cultivate disorder. And the way in which they cultivate disorder is how? By producing jealous, bitter jealousy. And the way they produce that bitter jealousy is by feeding selfish ambition. And so my contention is is simply this, that demons are probably far more active in things that we never, in which we never acknowledge their activity, and yet James himself is identifying them as part of the root cause of what is going on among his readers, his audience, that the demons, Satan himself, are, are capturing this. They are hijacking it. They are using it for their own ends. And we have this conclusion, therefore, that wherever bitter jealousy and selfish ambition have taken root and have established themselves, we know there is demonic activity. That is the very nature of this kind of wisdom. And notice thirdly, I've already alluded to it, it's fruit, verse 16. For where jealousy, so he repeats the two phrases, where jealousy, that's bitter jealousy, back up in verse 14, and selfish ambition, the pair, back up in verse 14, where they exist, here's the fruit, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In the context, when it comes to vile practice, I think he still has the tongue in view. Because you remember he has spent much of chapter 3 speaking about the sins of the tongue. He's going to come back to them in the fourth chapter. But it is this word disorder, disorder. What's going on here? Please understand, God is a God of order. Creation was a work of order. If there was anything, if there was anything that creation was, it was this, the symmetry and the unity and the beauty, order. Satan's goal from the beginning in tempting Adam and Eve has always been what? To sow what? Chaos and confusion. His goal has always been to undermine order and preserve and produce disorder, and accompanying that disorder, every vile practice. 
Oh, the Bible is chock full of examples. You think of Cain and Abel. There they are, two brothers. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He rejects Cain's sacrifice. Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. What happened? He envied Abel. And what was the result? The result was disorder and every vile practice to such a degree that Cain took his own brother's life. You think of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph has those dreams in which it is evident that his brothers, his parents are going to bow down to him. He shares this with the family, and we read that his brothers hated him even more for his dreams. Why? Selfish ambition leading to bitter jealousy, and it led to disorder and every vile practice. And what did they do to Joseph? They put him in that pit, and then they sold him into captivity as a slave into Egypt. See it with David and Saul as they're coming back from battle. I can't remember who they were fighting against, the Philistines perhaps. And the women sing their song. Yeah, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul hears it. He hears it. Selfish ambition. No, that's not feeding my ego. Uh, my, my, my desire to be uppermost is crossed. What's the result? Bitter jealousy. What's the result? Disorder. And he tries to take David's life. You think of Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai favored by the king and uh, esteemed by the king. Haman can't bear it. He's filled with jealousy. When he sees Mordecai, he is filled with anger and rage. Why? His selfish ambition has been crossed. The result is bitter jealousy. The result is disorder. And he tries to not only take Mordecai's life, but take the lives of the Jews living in his city. You think of Daniel and his colleagues. Daniel differentiates himself, distinguishes himself because of his wisdom, his insight, his ability to prophesy, God-given gift to prophesy. He's elevated among the other wise men in Babylon. And when they looked upon Daniel, they were filled with envy because they realized the king was about to appoint him over the kingdom. Selfish ambition, the desire to be uppermost, the desire to be esteemed, the desire to be noticed, crossed. The result, bitter jealousy. The result, disorder and every vile practice. One more from the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the Jewish religious leaders. They couldn't teach like him. They couldn't perform miracles like him. They couldn't attract crowds like him. Their selfish ambition was crossed. The result, bitter jealousy, disorder, and they seek to arrest him and they ultimately crucify him. Do you see the connection between the four? It begins right back in its origin, selfish ambition, ego. I have a basic problem, and my problem is this, self-exaltation. I want to convince myself in some way I am better than other people. And I will use all sorts of things to do it, even good things to do that. Anything to reaffirm who and what I think I am in the sight of God. When, however, that is crossed, when my selfish ambition, whatever it is I have put out there, whatever it is I've put out there that I think somehow exalts me, makes me more spiritual, as soon as, soon as I've put out there, that out there, 
If other individuals do not bow down to it as I have bowed down to it, the result is what? It always is what, my friends? It is bitter jealousy. And bitter jealousy will always vent. Always vent. It has to vent. It does. Find a release somehow. And the consequence will be disorder and every evil practice. Oh, I have a bunch of comments I want to make in conclusion. Let me do a little arithmetic here. Yeah, I'm not liking the way it comes out. Let me just leave, let me, let me bring it to a head. I mean, this text, let me bring it all to a head by, by leaving you with uh, just three comments. I mean, as you work your way through those verses, you think of the origin, the nature, the fruit of this hellish wisdom. Let me make three, I think, three concluding remarks that I pray the Spirit of God will use in our lives. The first is this. What James is describing and what I'm trying to describe, it can happen in marriages. It can happen in marriages. It does happen in marriages, right? It can happen in families. It can happen in friendships. It can happen in communities. And it can happen in churches. It's, it can happen in countries. It, it, is, it is the way it is. That uh, what he is describing, again, I hope you've got those four expressions, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, disorder, every evil practice. That what he is describing here, that which resides in my, in my love of self and will ultimately find expression, it, it touches every conceivable relationship. And it has the potential to destroy every relationship. We discover that there's distance where at one time there was closeness. We discover that there is suspicion where at one time there was trust. Discover that there is now animosity where at one time there was compassion. There is accusation where at one time there was encouragement. There was avoidance where at one time there was openness, there is now bitterness, where at one time there was sweetness, there is now disorder. And I beg of you, friend, whatever the context, the family, the marriage, you know, the home, the neighbor, the friend, the church, whatever the context, you understand this and you grasp this, that if what I have just described applies to some of your relationships, guessing it probably does, you now know why. You get, do you hear what I just said? You now know why. There is no other explanation. Is where the rubber meets the road. This is it. Gloves are off. We now know why. We trace it backwards. The disorder flows from bitter jealousy. And the bitter jealousy flows from what? Selfish ambition. And the selfish ambition exists Why? Because there's no melted heart. There is no melted heart at the foot of Calvary's cross, whereby this melted heart becomes a kind heart, a thoughtful heart, a gentle heart, a humble heart, a forgiving heart. Second remark I want to make is this, and I'm speaking from my own experience. I'm not going to get into any more detail than that, but let you know the fingers are pointed at me. When we do this, we will make use of two things in particular. 
We will. The first is this. We will make use of offenses. When, I, when, I, when I'm in this downward spiral of those four things that I've described, I will make use of offenses. Offenses will become insurmountable objects. You, you didn't wish me a happy birthday. Right? You didn't, you didn't visit me when I was sick with the flu. You didn't, uh, you know, comment on my latest Facebook post. You, you didn't, you, you walked by me in the hallway and didn't really acknowledge me. Or the last time we spoke, you were, you were, a, little, you were a little abrupt, all right? If I'm not in a good place, that is a melted heart, and selfish ambition is there, rearing its ugly head, what happens? What happens? That offense becomes an insurmountable object, doesn't it? And the bitter jealousy then turns into, that, that, that selfish ambition then turns into bitter jealousy. That bitter jealousy will then turn into disorder because I will make it my goal to do what now? Get back at you. Get back at you. I won't acknowledge the real problem because I don't want to do that before God. But in some way, somehow, you see, I need to reestablish the selfish ambition. I need to set ego back in its place. You've crossed my desire to be uppermost, right? And therefore, what must I do now? Diminish you in some way, some way. And we are hideous when it comes to this and the things we will employ. But I must diminish you somehow in order to reestablish my idol of self. The other thing we will take advantage of is opinions. And we will use our opinions. We will use our opinions and uh, use these to, in order to identify ourselves as something because we hold to this opinion. And because we hold to this opinion, I have attached my ego to it and assuring myself of who I am and what I think I am in God's sight on the basis of this opinion. What happens if Ike doesn't agree with me on that opinion? What have you just done, Ike? You just touch the untouchable, right? Because my desire to be uppermost, I have welded it together with this opinion. Ike isn't bowing down to my opinion. Therefore, he has crossed my desire to be uppermost. If I don't have a melted heart, what happens? He now becomes the object of what? Bitter jealousy. And guess what? There will be disorder there will be disorder. Where once there was closeness, there will now be distance. The third remark I want us to get is this. Aren't you glad I cut down on my remarks? I had a bunch. The third and final is simply this. And here we go. We've come full circle. There's the remedy. Here it is. It is that simple. There's the only answer, the only way out of this quagmire. Then melt my heart, O Savior. Bend me, yea, break me down until I own thee conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. Oh, when I really apply the gospel and I am gripped, enthralled, overwhelmed, and captivated by the realization that in Christ Jesus, God forgives me my open sins and my secret sins. 
I put to death selfish ambition. And where there is no selfish ambition, then there is nothing to give rise to bitter jealousy. And where there is nothing to give rise to bitter jealousy, there is what? No cause for disorder. I cease to use other people to affirm my sense of self-importance. That's what happens. I stop doing that. You're my brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't need you to affirm my sense of self-importance. I no longer need others to affirm me by agreeing with me. I no longer need others to affirm me by fawning over me. I no longer need others to affirm me by making much of me. I no longer need others to affirm me by conforming to me. You're free. You're free in Christ Jesus to be who you are. I am free in Christ Jesus to be who I am. We are deriving our identity from our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we no longer attach what? Our sense of self-importance to things, thereby erecting idols in our lives, untouchable idols that people dare not go anywhere near. If they do, the result will be bitter jealousy. And where there is bitter jealousy, there will be disorder. Oh, wonder, oh, wonder of all wonders, that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. Then, now here's where it really takes root. Melt, melt my heart, melt it. Bend me. Yea, break me down until I own thee, conqueror and Lord and sovereign crown. Our Father in glory above, we make this our heartfelt prayer this day, and we look to you for help. Uh, we look to you to impart understanding, insight, and we look to you to uh, bestow wisdom, the wisdom of which James speaks, that wisdom that is so precious in your sight, that wisdom that we see personified in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In a word, our Father, we pray that you would make us more like him. Help us to put off the old and put on the new. Be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And may we show forth Christ's likeness in word and thought and deed. In his name we pray. Amen.